Monopoly is one of the most famous board games in the world. For many of us, it is one of those things we played a few times with our families in childhood, but given the complexity of its setup, one that we seldom played again. For others, it is a classic staple of our board game rotation. No matter who you may be, Monopoly and its imagery remain a fixture among our cultural references. Do not pass go, or get out of jail free, or even the likeness of the Monopoly man himself. The game's lesson of scooping up properties to get rich at your friend's expense never quite fades from memory. Even so, while we are deeply familiar with the game and its icons, we tend to be much less familiar with its origins. Monopoly, which was first patented in the early 1930s by the soon-to-be-very-rich Charles Darrow, began in 1904 under the name of The Landlord's Game. The Landlord's Game and its inventor, Lizzie McGee, a name which I cannot get over, were interesting for a couple of reasons. In the first place, it was one of the very first circular board games where players cycled around the map instead of a linear game with one set endpoint. This new premise would catch on in an era when board games were rapidly taking off and become a staple of the modern board game dynamic. But perhaps more interesting was McGee's intent for the game. She meant it as a lesson in economics, one aimed at teaching the evils of land monopoly. As her self-published game caught on, she had it patented several times, improving it and adding additional rule sets. By the 1920s, McGee had developed two different game modes. The first set, The Landlord's Game, had players build wealth together to demonstrate the merits of common land ownership. The second set, which she called Monopoly, had players compete against one another to appropriate rent for themselves. Admittedly, the second premise was much more fun. While McGee's concept became popular, it had little advertising by its new publisher and spread mostly by word of mouth, giving rise to homemade versions by college students and faculty. The game was even taught as a class lesson in places like the Warden Business School. The 1920s was basically the Wild West era of board games, and unofficial variations of the game proliferated rapidly, some called Monopoly or Auction, while perhaps the most prominent such variant was called the Fascinating Game of Finance, or Finance for short. One edition of the game emerged among the Quaker community of Atlantic City in New Jersey, which employed Atlantic City street names as properties, with the most famous being Boardwalk. Through the friend of his wife, this homespun version was taught to Charles Darrow, who shrewdly redubbed it Monopoly and hired an artist to help him create a striking game board. Iconic game in hand, Darrow secured a deal with Parker Brothers in 1935 and soon became the world's first millionaire game designer. Poor Lizzie McGee never got her due credit in her lifetime, and most of her other games are completely forgotten. What we are most interested in today, however, is not McGee's game, but the philosophy and the economic thinker that motivated her to make it. You're listening to The Ankle Nook, a show about some of history's greatest stories. As always, I'm your host, Logan East. On today's episode, we dive into the amazing life story of a man who is perhaps America's most original economic thinker, Henry George. George, the man with two first names, is not particularly famous today, but in his own heyday of the late 19th century, George was a worldwide best-selling author and social critic, famous for his novel ideas about the causes of poverty, 
and their solution. Though economics textbooks do not sell very well in our own time, George's biggest book, Progress and Poverty, was in its own context of the 1880s, second only to the Bible in sales. In that book, George had looked at economic conditions in his own period, an era that today we often call by Mark Twain's phrase, the Gilded Age. American society was being transformed by rapid industrialization, urbanization, immigration, and explosive population growth. While these changes had produced untold wealth, exemplified in the mansions of Fifth Avenue and the lavish parties of the wealthy elite, it also gave rise to unspeakable poverty, witnessed in the crowded and lightless tenements of the urban working class or the debt-saddled homes of the nation's farmers. It was this apparent paradox of rising poverty in the face of staggering economic growth that occupied George's thoughts for most of his adult life. His answer to that problem, as suggested by the landlord's game, had to do with, well, land. But as for how he reached that conclusion, and for what he thought should be done about it, it is best to start at the beginning. Henry George was born on September 2, 1839, in Philadelphia, just a few blocks away from Independence Hall. At that time, Philadelphia was the nation's second-largest city of just over 200,000 residents. While steeped in the ideas and traditions of the American Revolution, the city was also a busy trading port and home to a wide variety of industries. In many ways, the Philadelphia of George's boyhood stood between a world of localized personal economic relationships and a looming one of rapid impersonal mass production. George was born second into what would ultimately become a large family of ten children. His father, Richard George, was a customs house clerk and a one-time printer of religious books. Though the elder George made a respectable middle-class income, it was stretched thin with so many mouths to feed, and the family's chief asset was the loving environment fostered by two pious parents. While George would eventually have brothers, they were much younger than himself, and his closest siblings were always his sisters, with whom he would correspond frequently as a young adult. Given the crowdedness of their modest home, George and his later brothers would often choose to sleep in the attic. At a young age, George demonstrated an independent, free-thinking streak. His father sent him to the best school that he could afford, but George bridled under authoritative instruction. Instead, he preferred the company of a private tutor and trips to the local lecture hall. He was, from his earliest days, an autodidact, a self-teacher. Rounding out his character and upbringing was his parents' devout Episcopalian faith. The Georges were pillars of the local congregation, which, unlike many other Episcopal parishes, was very evangelical in its orientation, fitting the broad current of the Second Great Awakening. While George himself typically held organized religion at an arm's length during his life, he seems to have inherited a deep spiritual sensibility and preoccupation with pursuing righteousness from his parents. Leaving the schoolhouse behind, George entered the workforce at age 14. He began as an office clerk at a rate of $2 per week. Demoralized by the low pay and sense that he was underappreciated, George opted to try his luck at sea. The boy George had grown up on stories of his grandfather's exploits as a sea captain in the War of 1812, 
and he had spent much of his free time along the city's wharves. Seeing an opportunity on the merchant vessel Hindu, under the command of an older friend from church, George sought service as a cabin boy at age 15. His parents agreed to the voyage, hoping it would settle some of the lad's restlessness and make a man of him. The 15-month journey would be an unforgettable and formative experience in George's life that took him to Australia and India. George recorded the entire trip in his diary, a habit that he would carry with him throughout his life. The crew contained sailors of many different backgrounds, including men from the Caribbean, Spain, and England. George appears to have gotten along well with them and developed sympathy for them as working men, especially when the captain withheld their wages in Melbourne. Sailing up the Ganges exposed him to death as decomposing bodies floated down the river in great numbers. Nevertheless, George's layover in Calcutta allowed him to explore the India of the East India Company. Enjoying the sights and even purchasing a pet monkey, George was also exposed to the grinding poverty of the place and the disparity between those who ran the country's extractive system and those who toiled in its fields. Nearly 17, George was much more mature and much tanner when he returned to Philadelphia. Resolved against the life of a seaman, George secured employment as an apprentice in a printing house, again for $2 a week. He took to the work extremely well, able to set type at an exceptional speed and earn himself a professional skill that would aid him throughout his life. But his age for a time kept him away from journeyman's wages, and his mind again turned to other opportunities. His interest was also turning away from Philadelphia for other reasons. He and his teenaged friends had formed a literary club together, where, in addition to getting into boyish trouble, they spent their time debating ideas. He had come to believe, as was typically understood in the classical economics of the age, that workers in old countries earned low wages, while those in new ones earned higher wages. Philadelphia was about as close to an old country as could be found in America, but news came frequently of the great living to be had in the new state of California. At the same time, it was the late 1850s, and he had begun arguing with his parents over slavery. While they were staunch, old-school Democrats who defended slavery as a sacred right to property, George was taking to free soil principles, believing the institution was wrong on moral grounds and bad for society. These concerns, coupled with affections for a girl whose family had just moved to Oregon Territory, were on George's mind when he saw an opportunity to go to the Pacific Coast on a ship for the lighthouse service. Though his family and friends were sad to see him leave, George assured them all that it was only a temporary journey to make his start in the world. Following a difficult voyage punctuated by a hurricane, a deadly outbreak of yellow fever, and a near encounter with some cannibalistic Tierra del Fuegans, George's vessel arrived safely in San Francisco Bay in May of 1858, and he promptly ditched the lighthouse service. In California, George would come to know love, extreme hardship, and himself. After a wild stint running a general store in Vancouver in hope of profiting from gold discoveries, he would spend the bulk of the next two decades bouncing between San Francisco and Sacramento, hopping from job to job. And it was there, during California's rapid recapitulation of the frontier boomtown metropolis process, that George would develop the core of his economic and political ideas. 
Drawing on his prior skills, he worked as a printer, joined the typographical union, and initially enjoyed success. But the wildcat economy of the fledgling state, combined with his own quick temper, found him cyclically unemployed and striving to remold himself, Franklin style, into a more diligent, productive young man. His diligence was doubled by his elopement with the woman who would be his inseparable life partner, Annie Fox, an orphaned Irish Catholic from Australia. Still, the fledgling George family faced poverty, driving George to pick up odd jobs and, at one point, beg a stranger for money. He was also stung by news of the deaths of one childhood friend and his favorite sister back home in Philadelphia. The pressure of providing for a family amid personal hardships drove him to rethink his life trajectory. In 1865, he elected to revive his latent compositional abilities, at first writing supernatural musings in a literary magazine that also featured the work of the young Twain. It was the news of Lincoln's assassination via telegraph on April 15, 1865, however, that finally motivated George to enter political journalism. Though he came from a conservative family of Democrats, he was a staunch Lincoln man throughout the war. His published essays reflected that fact and made a name for George with the right people. His obvious talent soon got him a job at the up-and-coming San Francisco Daily Times. Providentially, through a combination of death and fallings out, George found himself installed as its editor-in-chief in 1866, only a year after his first publication. Though he would bounce from paper to paper and occasionally fall back onto a hand-to-mouth existence, writing on public questions as a journalist, essayist, and author would remain his principal lifelong vocation. George had imbibed deeply of the free soil, free labor ideology current among northerners of his generation. This loose tradition championed an ideal, virtuous republic of independent freemen who enjoyed even access to life's opportunities. It sought equal rights for all, special privileges for none, and an economy where each man should hope to reach a competency or a position of propertied independence. Undergirding this vision was the availability of open land, which made the Jeffersonian dream of a nation of landed yeomen possible. It was also what made the spread of slavery into western territories so repugnant and that it helped make California a free state upon admission in 1850. In accordance with his democratic heritage, George leaned toward the common man's half of the free labor creed and tended to view the Hamiltonian pro-business side with suspicion. His political heroes were Jefferson, Jackson, and Lincoln, with Jefferson's rationalist egalitarianism as the strongest ideological influence. In California, George saw the large-scale problems of America played out in miniature and at double time. Public debate in the Golden State of the 1860s and 70s was dominated by questions of wages, labor, population, monopoly, and, critically, land. Land had been a difficult issue since annexation. Because California's land was initially subdivided into loose land grants for Mexican cattlemen, then invaded by filibusters and gold rushers, and then overlaid with an uneven American model of freehold settlement, to say nothing of the extermination of over 100,000 natives, land titles were chaotic. 
In the confusion, land speculators and big investors had accumulated large tracts of California's prime real estate. The apparent swindle set off squatters' riots and stoked distrust among many would-be freeholders. The problem was only exacerbated by a swelling population and economy that drove up rents, a trend that seemed to threaten California's early workmen's dream of cheap land and high wages. The controversy even included the possibility of San Francisco's municipal ownership of all lands within its borders under the arcane Spanish Pueblo system. One veteran of these conflicts was the editor of the Sacramento Bee, James McClatchy, who was a friend and colleague of George and who had originally gotten him his job at the Daily Times. McClatchy connected George to a tradition of radicalism that reached back to antebellum New York and the Young America movement. McClatchy had worked on Horace Greeley's famous New York Tribune, the same Greeley who had worked as part of the National Reform Association under the slogan of Vote Yourself a Farm. These men had been instrumental in the drive for what ultimately became the Homestead Act of 1862, which opened up much of the U.S. government's western lands for public settlement. With McClatchy's and George's heeding of Greeley's famous advice to go west, that brand of radical republicanism, which valued the common man's access to the land, informed George's unique perspective. As he told it, epiphanies began to hit George in a series of visions. In 1866, at a protectionist lecture for those people who favored high tariffs, he suddenly reversed his inherited pro-tariff values and rebutted the speaker in favor of absolute free trade on a moral basis, recognizing it as, quote, an evolutionary force that promoted peace among nations and urged humanity on toward a higher plane of universal fraternity very high words. In early 1869, he was sent by the San Francisco Herald to New York to gain access to Western Union's Associated Press, which controlled access to telegraphic communications with California, and which, as many of you probably know, is still around and important today. The AP had prior contracts in San Francisco and refused access. While he made do by sending coded stories back to his employer for a time, the AP ultimately retaliated by raising the price of messages to the Herald, confronting George with the injustice of monopoly firsthand. At the same time, he was struck by the tenements and suffocating poverty in many parts of the city. There, he later recounted, a vision came to him from on high, impressing upon him that his life's mission was to address the problem of modern poverty. Lastly, while riding in the country around Oakland in 1870, George had his final crucial revelation. Upon inquiring about the price of the surrounding vacant land and being told it was going for $1,000 a lot, he said it hit him. Quote, there was the reason for advancing poverty with advancing wealth. With the growth of population, land grows in value, and the men who work it must pay for the privilege. End quote. Thus was the formation of George's worldview that, nearly a decade later, would be published in Progress and Poverty. Inspired or not, his written critique of land monopoly as the cause of poverty evolved gradually. His 1868 article, What the Railroad Will Bring Us, checked the optimism of those eagerly awaiting completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, 
observing that while the connection would settle the wilderness that was California, it would dissolve the land's middling frontier equality. Onrushing masses and capital would drive a wedge between the haves and, quote, those who have not. Those with assets would benefit from rising property prices, while the working classes would have to pay more for lodging and accept lower wages. Subsequently, as a member of the reform wing of the state Democratic Party, George wrote two significant pamphlets in 1871. The seldom-emphasized subsidy question in the Democratic Party, which argued against railroad subsidies along classical Democratic laissez-faire lines, and the much better known Our Land and Land Policy, which reflected his maturing views on the root of the problem. Singing from a hymnal of liberal theory that rang of Locke and Ricardo, George affirmed in Our Land and Land Policy the labor theory of value, noting that the right to property stemmed from the right to oneself and one's own labor. But, where classical theory had defended the right to property and land by virtue of man's first laboring upon it, George found for man, quote, another right, declared by the fact of his existence, the right to the use of so much of the free gifts of nature as may be necessary to supply all the wants of that existence, and as he may use without interfering with the equal rights of anyone else. This sacred, inalienable right was, quote, the free gift of his creator to every man that comes into this world, end quote. Given that land, taken as all natural space, resources, and fertility, was the fountain of all life-giving wealth, its control by a small elite that charged for the privilege of its use divorced a man from his birthright and resulted in wealth stratification and poverty. Observing the rapidly diminishing public domain in a vein that foreshadowed Frederick Jackson Turner, George first insisted on limiting land tenure to actual settlers, and reigning in corrupt land grants. Then, taking the argument further, he lauded the pre-enclosure feudal tax system of England and urged that the expenses of state be secured solely through a tax on the unimproved value of land, which would have the added benefit of ensuring lands were only occupied by efficient users, not speculators. Lest yeomen should balk, he added a small homestead exemption, In short, the core of George's ideology had been formed. Over the next several years, George dedicated himself to study and reflection to develop a more complete political economic theory capable of reforming society. Progress and Poverty was the right book at the right time. Coming at the tail end of the first leg of the Long Depression, then called the Great Depression, that witnessed mass business failure, including George's own newspaper, unemployment, wage cuts, strikes, and the great uprising along the railroads of 1877, progress and poverty sought to explain why the dream of industrial progress had turned into a nightmare, and, better still, how to fix it. Observing that, over and again, the poor of developed countries flee to less populated, newer countries where material progress is yet in its early stages, in George's words, George noted that with the coming of industry, population, and development, the sought-after, promised land flies before us like a mirage. The greatest want was to be found beside the greatest wealth, as in the streets of New York. Developing the theme he had undertaken in 1868, 
he asserted that, quote, material progress does not merely fail to relieve poverty, it actually produces it. This paradox he deemed the great enigma of our times, which, not to answer, is to be destroyed. His answer to the riddle was essentially the same as it had been in 1871, only this time in 1879 he pursued it at great length and in magnificent style that invoked the ideals of the Founding Fathers and the teachings of Christ alongside critiques of classical economics. Beginning with a 250-page analysis of academically dominant theories of wages, rents, Malthusian population growth, and the distribution of wealth, he proclaimed that, contrary to economic orthodoxy, neither poverty nor wealth stratification were natural. They were the result of a great underlying injustice, private ownership of land. There were three factors in production, land, labor, and capital. Capital, for George, as with classical theorists, was but the accumulated fruits of labor that assisted in yet greater production. Capital and labor themselves were not in conflict, but rightly functioned harmoniously in production. Land, or all natural resources in space, was necessary for all productive pursuits, and, not being the production of any person, and only achieving its value through the productive potential it received from the surrounding community, rightly belonged to society as a whole. The private ownership of land ensured that any advance in material progress would disproportionately accrue to landowners via rent. This private monopoly divided those who benefited from economic growth and those who fell behind and it was also the cause of the boom-and-bust cycle of economic depressions because it created speculation and asset appreciation that inevitably burst when rents became untenable. The just remedy was to make land common property. The practical remedy was to tax the full unimproved value of land, ensuring its rent instead accrued to society and to abolish all other forms of unjust taxation and he meant all forms of taxation other than the land tax. The message was radical, rational, and delightfully simple, and in the context of the early 1880s, it spread like wildfire. Progress in Poverty was an international bestseller, making George a household name and further stoking popular economic debates. Capitalizing on the book's success, George and his family relocated to New York City, where he would remain until his death. George's ideas, combined with his existing family and professional connections, resonated with America's Irish population on account of the problem of landlordism and extreme poverty in Ireland. He was hired as a correspondent for the Irish world and traveled to Ireland and Great Britain between 1881 and 82, where he had an enormous influence on radical political thought. Maintaining momentum, George continued to write articles and books to promote his reform agenda. His major publications in order were The Irish Land Question in 1881, in which he connected the Irish struggle against landlordism with his land theory, Social Problems of 1883, in which he addressed the problems of economic dislocation not covered in Progress and Poverty, but which he ultimately tied back to natural rights and land monopoly, Protection or Free Trade in 1886, in which he systematically attacked protectionist theory and insisted on complete, unencumbered free trade between nations, and what was supposed to be his magnum opus, the science of political economy, in which he fully expounded his theory of society as based on economic conditions 
and which was published in unfinished form upon his death. George's supporters rapidly organized into a loose campaign to advance the cause of land value taxation, which came to be known simply as a single tax movement. George and the single taxers soon found themselves in a broad stream of indignant protest and reform that defined the 1880s, making common cause with groups like the Knights of Labor leading up to 1886, the year of the Great Upheaval. In that year of many strikes, the Haymarket Affair, and the completion of the Statue of Liberty, George was drafted to run for mayor of New York City by the newly formed United Labor Party. Forming a coalition of middle-class reformers and the urban working class, George came in an impressive second place, finishing ahead of a young Theodore Roosevelt, but behind the main Democratic candidate, backed by the Tammany Hall political machine. But the party was not to last. George ejected socialists from the movement over ideological differences. The conservative Catholic hierarchy condemned his theories, costing him poor Irish support, and allies like the Knights of Labor cratered amid middle-class backlash against the upheavals of 86. His mixed experiences with third-party, working-class politics prompted him to turn his attention to leading an ideologically committed band of middle-class reformers in an insurgency of the Democratic Party. His success with the Democratic Party was, to put it mildly, mixed. While he did nudge the party closer toward free trade, and while a number of single taxers, like George's friend Tom L. Johnson, were able to gain control of city governments in places like Cleveland, Ohio, the single tax itself did not go very far in mainstream politics. More often, young political reformers were inspired by George's desire to end poverty through political reform to enter politics themselves. But these disciples did not stick very close to George's ideological message, instead fostering legislation like the income tax. And those who remained committed single taxers were often ousted from the halls of power. In 1897, an ailing George was again drafted to run for mayor of New York City. He had suffered a stroke a few years earlier and had been trying to finish his final book, The Science of Political Economy, before his anticipated death. His doctor warned him that the strain of the campaign could cost him his life, and it was doubtful that he would come close to winning. But George saw in the campaign a martyr's cause and entered it under the banner of the party of Thomas Jefferson fighting for what he saw as true democratic principles and against the corruption of Tammany Hall. He spoke to crowds multiple times a day and, for a time, seemed to have his old fire back. But, almost as George himself predicted, he died in his sleep only a few days before Election Day. Thousands flocked to his funeral, and those who had once denounced him as a radical now eulogized him as a sincere man of integrity. Contrary to his hopes, however, George was never more famous in death than he had been in life. The single tax movement would live on for a time, securing notable reforms in city governance, making private utilities public, and making a case for the leasing instead of the sale of valuable public lands. And some single taxers would go on to set up model George's communities in places like Arden, Delaware, and Fairhope, Alabama. But George's central message of the injustice of private ownership of land has mostly been forgotten outside of a faithful few. In a paradoxical way, 
it may be that the game Monopoly is his best-known legacy. Nevertheless, George's observations about the modern economy were forgotten, not refuted, and those who would seek answers to our own problems of speculation, wealth stratification, and the sense of closing economic opportunities would do well to study the words of America's most original economic thinker. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Inglenook, be sure to like and subscribe. Until next time, have a good one.